This holiday season, give the gift of decadent high flavanol dark chocolate to your loved ones. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular deaths. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high flavanol cocoa may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline and improving mood. Flavonatural's dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. So this holiday season, do what I'll be doing and gift your loved ones with decadent dark chocolate that has the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. Just go to flavonaturals.com and use coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off site-wide. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $30. That's flavanaturals.com, coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off now through December 10th. Get it in time for Christmas at flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to discuss a subject, well, uh, very, very important because uh, we are in the midst of an epidemic. Uh, It's a novel epidemic. It's uh, new in human history, uh, and it has to do with the fact that we're living longer and escaping other major diseases, but uh, a condition that's just rapidly accelerating is dementia memory loss, and including uh, many forms, but also specifically Alzheimer's. And today we're going to talk to uh, an expert on that subject, uh, Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's been in private practice as a psychiatrist and a certified master psychopharmacologist. That's pretty cool because, well, I guess it has to do with brain chemistry. He's board certified in psychiatry, and he's a highly sought-after lecturer and international speaker and author of several books. He practices in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he's the author of a book entitled The Aging Brain, Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia and Sharpen Your Mind. And uh, I want to congratulate you in advance because it's a great book. It's very comprehensive. And it's not just a look at um, uh, Alzheimer's and memory. It's a comprehensive look at the aging process itself. So uh, you've really achieved a tour de force in the book. Thank you. So, you know, well, first of all, d- define the scope of the problem. I mean, why is this uh, so significant and why are we confronting uh, a condition of epidemic proportions? Well, you know, the population is aging. The, the boomers are moving into that age range now. So we have a high percentage of our population aging. And this uh, illness or disorder is affecting currently about 5 to 7% of the world's population of people over the age of 60. Uh, and that number is is only growing. Uh, 2010, approximately 35 million people in the world had some form of dementia, and that number um, is projected to grow uh, to 115 million by 2050. Do, do do we feel that it's it's simply uh, the result of the the aging process itself? Because historically, you know, while there was a lot of infant mortality and there was a lot of people who died, you know, well before they attained the age where people now get Social Security. One of the problems with Social Security is more and more people are living. But uh, is it possible that some of the conditions of modern life 
uh, are accelerating this epidemic? Yes. Yeah, so you could ask the similar question: Is obesity um, as as rampant today uh, in in the past as it is today, or is that more of a modern Western experience? Diabetes type two, the adult onset diabetes, is that was that as rampant in the past as it is today? And the answer is no to those those questions because of a lot of the factors that affect our overall style of living, including food sources, what's the quality of the food we're eating, uh, the lifestyle we live, are we having as much physical activity, mental activity and engagement, family breakdown, which enhances uh, psychological and emotional stress. And so as, as we talk about this issue, you'll find there's a whole variety of factors that, that uh, come together to have a confluence effect to increase uh, inflammation on the human body, and that over the course of time accelerates our risk of dementia as we age. Well, let's start from the beginning, as you do in the book, is you actually start in preconception, you know, with our genetic inheritance. Is uh, our our genetics our fate when it comes to uh, susceptibility to Alzheimer's disease? Because, you know, personally, uh, I've checked my uh, genes, I've, I've looked at my SNPs, and, and it's kind of bewildering because, you know, I have several that are really good and I have a few that are, that are troubling. So how do you put it all together? So when, it, when you speak about Alzheimer's dementia, there are two forms. There's the familial early onset form, which if you get this uh, type of Alzheimer's disease, you actually have the disease before you're 55 years of age. So it can happen in your 40s and 50s. That accounts for less than 5% of all the cases of Alzheimer's disease, and that is related to three specific genes that we really don't have any good handle on yet and sense of anything we can do about it. So if I, think, you I think we those, saw a, a 60 Minutes uh, special on uh, a cohort of families. I think they were from Ecuador or something, and they're subject to, to intensive scientific study because so many people in that family grouping uh, are demented by the time they're 50 or 60. Right. This is a familial onset, and it's a gene that, that drives that. And if you get that gene, then right now, you're you're most likely going to get Alzheimer's dementia in your 50s. But the, again, that's a very small subset of the overall population. The Most people, if you have a family history of Alzheimer's dementia, and it hit grandma when she was 68, 75, 82, this is the late onset form of Alzheimer's dementia. It accounts for 95% of all the form, all the Alzheimer's dementias. And there are two, there's a, there is one gene that has been associated with it. It's the APOE4 gene. And because you get a set from mom and dad, you can have two copies of that. A double hit, so to speak. Yeah, right. If you have two copies of that, then that increases your risk of Alzheimer's dementia 60%. So it increases your risk. However, it is only an increase in risk. It still depends on the rest of the way you live your life. One study out of the University of Washington found that individuals who had two copies of the bad gene did not progress to Alzheimer's disease and had less of the toxic protein associated with Alzheimer's in their brain, even if they had two copies of the gene, if they had a history of exercise. So one modifiable factor, that we go through many of them in the book, that you can bring into your life is physical exercise. There's a whole cascade of reasons why that's true. But uh, with the late onset form, the jet genetics don't determine that you will get it. It only can affect your risk depending on your lifestyle. Right. And the, the term for that, I think, is epigenetics. And you talk a lot about that in the book. And what's nice about that concept is that uh, your fate is not sealed by your genes. You can sort of overcome some genetic defects. And you cite a very interesting 
mouse experiment, mice with a defective gene that makes them very prone to memory loss, um, respond with almost complete uh, uh, overcoming of this genetic defect by being placed in what's called an enriched environment. Can you speak to that? Right. So in this particular study, they genetically altered the mice. So they had a gene defect that causes learning and memory problems. And they uh, took these cloned mice and they ran about us into two groups. And one group um, in their adolescence had two weeks of an enriched environment where the mice had a lot of things to climb on and play with and different textures to experience. That group was compared to a cloned, a genetically identical group without that two-week enriched history. And the group with the two-week enriched history had normal memory and learning and then they let them reproduce, and their kids actually had normal memory and learning. And, and they had the gene defect, but they had a chemical marker on above that gene which altered the expression of that gene, so it basically prevented the defect from causing the neurological memory problems. We sometimes call this a transcriptomics because, or transcriptomics, because it, it it's the way that a gene is expressed. It's not just having a gene. It's the gene can be modified by your, uh, your diet, your, your sleep patterns, your exercise and your environment. But so what does that, this enriched environment experiment say to us? What are the practical implications for humans in terms of, uh, a lifestyle that helps us, uh, overcome risk? So this particular study was not directly looking at the mouse form of Alzheimer's disease. It was just looking at the idea that can our lifestyle, can life experiences alter gene expression, uh, and can we pass those gene expressions along to our kids, those expression changes, not just the gene sequences, but the instructions telling the genes how to express themselves. And so we learned that, yes, healthy life choices can alter our gene expression. Unhealthy life choices can also alter our gene expression. And so, and that goes along from things like physical exercise, mental exercise, lifelong learning, food choices that we eat. All of these things impact how our genes are being expressed, and we have the ability to make healthy choices or harmful choices. There's this notion of cognitive reserve, which means if you uh, exercise your brain like a muscle, uh, you, even as it declines, you know you still have something left over. Uh, and that applies to educational experience. That seems to uh, be correlated with susceptibility or lack of susceptibility to memory decline. Although, you know, obviously there are uh, professors and professionals who uh, ultimately develop neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, they're less likely to suffer from dementia, right? Well, that's true. And one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of design law. What I uh, the laws upon which life are constructed to operate, like laws of physics and laws of health. And one of those design laws is the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if we don't use it, we lose it. And we all know that. Well, that's true for not just physical muscles, but if you want strong musical abilities, you've got to practice your instrument. You want strong language skills, you've got to practice the new language. And so what you're mentioning here about lifelong learning, if we want a complex neural um, circuitry, then we have to exercise our minds, our brains to think and to contemplate deeply and learn new information. When we do that, we structurally develop pathways in our brain that make it more resilient. Additionally, we turn genes on epigenetic we turn genes on that are demonstrated that when they stay on, we are at lower risk to developing dementia. But if we don't engage in new learning, these genes will shut off, and those shutting, shutting off of these genes are associated with higher risks of developing dementia. 
What about some of the more equivocal studies lately, which suggest that some of these brain teaser programs, you know, brain development uh, and uh, sort of these puzzle programs that they've experimented with, with people with failing memory, don't really work all that well. Isn't that because what that's not new learning. Okay. That's not new learning. <laughs> that see, and that's the whole point. Somebody who does it's lots of sort of a parlor trick kind again, of thing, right? Well, no. With uh, somebody who does crossword puzzles over and over again, they're not learning something new. They're okay. simply exercising an ability that they already have, but they're not extending themselves to learn something new. Learning something new would be if you've never done ballroom dancing, you go and take um, ballroom dance lessons, and you actually learn the waltz. Now you've actually learned something new. It takes, and ballroom dancing would be a great thing to learn if you don't already know it. You would have to not only focus on the steps and the timing, but you're doing physical exercise simultaneously. But if you already know how to ballroom dance, you would still get the benefit from the physical part, but there really wouldn't be any cognitive benefit. And I think you could figure that out. You wouldn't even be thinking about it. You'd just be doing it. And, but paradoxically, the, the studies uh, show that physical exercise has more robust uh, dividends than uh, these so-called mental exercises. Okay, so there, it, it, it's not an either-or, it's both. When you do physical exercise, the reason there's so much robust benefit to that is because um, the, the reason that people are primarily getting Alzheimer's dementia is because they're having high inflammation in the body with insulin resistance happening in the brain, which causes a cascade of... of, of pathways to be impaired that we can't remove toxins from the brain and they build up and damage the neurons. So when you exercise physically, multiple things happen. One, you cause insulin sensitivity. And when insulin sensitivity happens in your brain, insulin directs new learning, new memory formation, as well as the clearance of a lot of toxins in the brain. Secondly, when you exercise regularly physically, you improve vascularization. So you have better blood flow to get in the brain to bring nutrients in and take waste products out. Third, when you exercise physically, you activate multiple neurotrophins. These are proteins your brain makes that causes the brain like to Like BDNF, brain-derived neur neurotrophic factor, and so on. Right. That's one of the neurotropins that is turned on with exercise, and there's others that enhance uh, neuronal growth and neural, neuronal connectivity. And so with physical exercise comes a whole host of physiological changes that are, are necessary for the brain to stay in good health. Mental exercise uh, can turn on some of the genes specific to the brain itself that are important for new learning, but it doesn't have any of the benefit regarding reduced inflammation. Additionally, when you exercise physically, you turn on interleukin-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine that suppresses inflammatory cytokines in our body, thus reducing inflammation through our body. So lots of really positive things from physical exercise. So definitely you'll get better uh, effects from, uh, or more, more measurable effects from regular physical exercise. But you also do get benefit. And what, what is shown to happen, if you look at the landscape of the interventions, four major interventions that work together to prevent late-onset Alzheimer's dementia, it's regular physical exercise, regular mental exercise, new learning, um, stress management, um, and healthy nutrition. Right. We, and that's the, sort of the four-legged stool on which all of this is based. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, sleep because you've devoted considerable uh, verbiage of the book to the importance of sleep uh, for memory consolidation and learning. It turns out that, you know, we're both went to medical school and we pulled those all-nighters. Uh, turns out we had the wrong approach. 
I didn't pull any all-nighters, I can tell you. <laughs> Unless you I was in the hospital doing the clinics. Yes, I did that. But not an all-night study session with a book. I never did that. Um, I Maybe I should have done up. a psych residency. I don't know. <laughs> I was <laughs> in I internal medicine. The, I did the med surge all-nighters when you're doing all-night through the clinic, yeah. changing bandages and stuff. Yes, of course. Right. But, um, but, but counterproductive because it, sleep is necessary for kind of laying down those neural connections that are essential for recall, right? That's exactly right. Um, the brain is about 2 to 3% of the body weight, but it uses 20% of the body's energy. It's highly metabolic, and as it's burning energy, it creates, weight, creates waste products. Those waste products need to be cleared out of the brain or else they can become toxic and cause neur neural damage over time. It's during sleep that the neurons will actually contract and expel out of the cytoplasm, the inside of the neuron, um, the waste products into the cerebral spinal fluid for clearance out of the brain. This is so new lymphatic system, right? This uh, yes. sort of circulating lymph within the brain, which recently discovered that sort of takes out the trash. That's exactly right. And this is why children need more sleep than adults because their brains are going through a much significantly more greater flux with more neural pruning and, and, and much more waste products to be cleared out of their brains than adults. But adults need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night just to keep up with the metabolic processes of an adult brain. And if we don't get that chronically, not on a one-night occasion or traveling to Europe or something, but if we're chronically um, sleep-deprived, then we do increase our risk of dementia. Additionally, it is, as you said, it's during sleep that memories consolidate, uh, which means if we're learning something, it goes into a part of the brain for short-term storage. But if we um, during sleep, they will actually transfer those engrams into other parts of the brain for long-term storage. They did a study on college, uh, college students where they took a group of them, randomized them into two groups, gave them both a learning period to learn made-up words, and at the end of the learning period, they, they tested both groups on how many words they could recall the, these made-up words and what they meant, and they scored similarly. Then one group got to go sleep. The other group was kept awake for 12 hours. And then they brought them back and tested them both again. And not only did the group that got to sleep score better than the group who didn't, they scored better than they themselves did immediately after the learning period. Hmm. That's profound. Uh, should, you know, as you age, you know, clearly people have less um, consistent sleep patterns and they may wake up in the middle of the night, say to go to the bathroom or, you know, just. Because they do, they wake up and, you know, they may be up a little bit and then go back to sleep. Should you worry if you don't sleep through the night as you age? Is that going to cause you to have uh, Alzheimer's? I'm so glad you brought this up because I get this from so many patients. They come to see me and they say, Doc, I've got a sleep problem. I go, what's your problem? Well, I'm waking up in the middle of the night. And so there's this idea out there that normal sleep is you go to sleep at a certain time, you sleep solidly for seven to eight hours, and you wake up seven to eight hours later. Right. That is not actually what's happening in the brain. Um, when somebody goes to sleep, they enter the light sleep stage one. That's when grandma's snoring on Thanksgiving afternoon on the couch. You go, Grandma, you're snoring. I wasn't even asleep yet. Okay, it's that just nodding off sleep. Followed by sleep, sleep stage two, which then is followed by the deep, slow wave sleep where your body temperature falls, heart rate falls. That's followed by REM, rapid eye movement sleep, where we dream and then you wake up. Then back stage one, down through the deep sleep, REM, wake up, and on, so on. We go through these cycles all night long. From the time you enter the stage one to the time you exit REM is anywhere between 70 and 120 minutes. So if you're waking up about every little over an hour to two hours through the night, 
as long as you're able to get back to sleep within a few minutes, there is no negative downside to that. And so what happens when we're young or when we're very physically exhausted, work really hard in the yard, then we sleep and those wake-ups may just be seconds where we just wake up enough, shift, turn in the bed, and we fall asleep again. We have amnesia. The next morning, we think we slept through the night. Right. We actually had a brief wake-up period. When we get older, we wake up and we get a bladder call. We go to the bathroom. We remember we wake up, woke up, and now we think, oh, no, I've got a sleep problem. And people start worrying now that they're yeah. not getting good sleep. Then and they, it's the they come to you and they the ask problem. for sleep meds because you're the, right. neuro, the, the, the psychoneuropharmacologist. And most medicines used by doctors and over-the-counter for sleep, most of them, cause memory problems. Uh, how do they typically do that? What What are some of the worst culprits? So the benzodiazepine family of medicines, uh, the Ambien's, the Lunesta's, the um, Valiums and Xanax and Klonopins and Dalmines and Halcyons and, and those types of medicines, they chemically interfere, number one. They also interfere, they chemically interfere with um, memory consolidation and they interfere with sleep architecture and are well known. There's been nine studies looking at the increased risk of dementia, not just memory problem acutely, which they are known to do, but actual increasing your risk of dementia. And of the nine studies, seven found a positive relationship between benzodiazepine use and uh, dementia formation, one was no effect and one showed protective effect. So the preponderance of the studies right now would, would be consistent with the benzodiazepines increasing risk of dementia. The other medicines often used um, and are many over-the-counter sleep aids are antihistamines like diphenhydramine, also known as Benadryl, or hydroxazine, known as Vistaril. And these types of antihistamines are also anticholinergic. And, and, and you may not know that you're taking them because you did, they're under innocuous names like Tylenol PM or Advil PM, but the PM part means they have these uh, these sedating antihistamines in them. Right, and the antihistamine itself is probably okay. It's the anticholinergic part of that medicine, which interferes with acetylcholine, and acetylcholine, you know, is, in, in, is the, the, the primary target for most of the Alzheimer's medications on the market now, enhancing acetylcholine signaling, because when people do get Alzheimer's disease, they lose their acetylcholine neurons. And so in blocking acetylcholine further with a sleep aid can o will only enhance cognitive and memory problems. Right. Um, what about just, you know, some of the daytime antihistamines? You know, say you have hay fever and you take uh, Claritin or something like that. Is that going to cause a problem? Nope. Is that going to rob nope. your they, memory? The, no, those are of a different order, and they do not have the anticholinergic elements associated with them. Okay. And so a popular strategy for sleep is, you know, the old nightcap, you know, take a shot of brandy or something like that, uh, vodka, because uh, it, do, it does knock you out. Is it a bad right, idea or a good idea? Very bad idea. Um, it, it interferes with normal sleep architecture, contributes to memory problems. It actually reduces total time amount of sleep, causes epigenetics, which can upregulate uh, stress circuitry activation in your brain, so you can have actually more restlessness and uneasiness. And um, it's associated with uh, increasing cognitive uh, problems uh, doing that on, on a nightly basis. So there's no positive, there's no study that shows any actual health benefits from ethanol. There are studies that show health benefits from less than two glasses of wine a day, but if you dig into the studies, what you discover, it's not from the ethanol, it's from the polyphenols uh, used uh, in the, from the grapes that were used uh, to make the wine. And so you, you get the same health benefits from drinking unfermented grape juice. Yeah, so the benefits of alcohol have been clearly exaggerated. And actually, there's some uh, thought that there may be some... Uh, 
the hidden hand of the beverage uh, industry, the alcoholic beverage industry, and in underwriting some of those studies that came out lately. Um, right. It, what about uh, weekly rest? Because you talk about that, you know, as part of the religious experience, uh, people observe the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition, and in the uh, Seventh Day Adventist tradition, it's uh, Saturdays. In the Christian tradition, it's Sundays. In the, in the uh, uh, Muslim tradition, there's rest days, and so on. Uh, any uh, documented benefit to that? Yes. Oh, no, there's lots of documented benefit to that. And the way people should view this, this is the, the sleep is rest for the body. The sabbatical, one, one day in seven, is rest for the mind. Um, where you would take, and I have so many of my patients, especially in the Western world, that are just busy, busy, busy. They're doing their job 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and then when they're not at their job, they're doing the household stuff, doing the yard work, doing the doing the shopping, doing the laundry, and, and they, they just never get, and they're on the go all the time. And this is actually very demanding and exhausting of our physiology, and uh, taking one day in seven, where you can put aside our work, our homework, our stressors, and just decompress unwind, go out into nature, uh, uh, spend time with family and friends or worship experience, something designed to help you um, experience less uh, psychological, emotional, relational stress on a weekly, once-a-week basis, and I consider it a vacation in time. It's my day off to unwind. This has been documented to, um, to be one of the factors to contribute to not only reduce dementia and reduce disability, but longevity in the Blue Zones um, uh, if you remember um, Butner's book, The Blue Zones, looking yep. at the five zones in the world, the highest concentration of be- people being over 100 years of age, the only zone in the United States was Loma Linda, California, and what uh, he cited in his book, one of the factors there was that they took the weekly Sabbath rest. That it's the home of the Seventh-day Adventists, Loma Linda University, right. and so on, yeah. Right. Uh, all right, great stuff, but you know, our, our audience uh, likes to focus on uh, nutritional supplementation and diet. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in part two. We divide our podcast into two parts, as our listeners know. And we're going to continue in this vein. The Aging Brain. It's a new book by our guest, Dr. Timothy Jennings, Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia and Sharpen Your Mind. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 